Our Father, I uh, thank you again for gathering your people this morning, for gathering us together in this place, together to look to Jesus and to remember the gospel, to proclaim the gospel to one another through, through word and through deed, as we serve one another, as we sing together, as we hear the word of God preached, as we uh, serve in Redemption Kids and, and teach our children. Lord, in everything that we do this morning, I pray that that you would be at work, that your Holy Spirit would be at work to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ so that all of us would have our attention drawn to who you are and what you've done and what Jesus means to us. Like what Jesus means in the grand scheme of things, what the cross and the resurrection is all about. I pray, Lord, that you just grab our hearts, affections, and attention this morning. I pray, Lord, that you give me the words to speak, that you would say what you would have said as I'm totally unable. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each heart in here, have us each hear what we need to hear, and move us to know you and to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus has often been mis- misrepresented by the church. Jesus has often been misrepresented by the church. I've personally talked to several people over the years who reject Jesus because of some experience that they've had with the church or maybe somebody in the church. I remember long ago before I was a pastor in another job, I remember riding the back roads of rural Georgia with a, a co-worker and a friend on the way to a job site, and I started asking him about his experience with the church, and we were just getting into that conversation, and so uh, he kind of told me about it. He said that somebody he grew up with and, and, and a friend of his had joined the church at some point, and eventually kind of, you know, he stuck around, and he became a youth minister at the church, and, and then he watched his friend. He watched this guy kind of take advantage of like a flexible work schedule and little oversight, and it just really bothered my friend a lot to watch it happen. He saw like this lack of work ethic and this taking advantage of uh, those who were giving to the church and, and, and his position. And so this, this guy's behavior left my friend and my, co- my co-worker with kind of a bad taste in his mouth for ministers, especially and for the church overall. And to him, Christians just really seem to be, be about taking advantage of, of other people to get what they want. And I asked him, I asked him to try to to look beyond that and try to see who Jesus really was and what Jesus was really about, Uh, not just this one guy and and, and his experience with him, but it was too hard for him to look past that. Jesus had been misrepresented, and it was really hard for him to see past that. Maybe you've had similar conversations, or maybe you yourself even feel similar about Jesus and about the church. Maybe you have felt that way. Maybe you feel that way today. Several years ago, there was a, a book that came out. It was really popular. It's called Blue Like Jazz. Maybe some of you have read it. You want to get fired up? Anybody read it? Ooh, we are fired up. Yeah, all right. I don't know why you need to be fired up. but In the book, author Donna Miller, he tells the story of how he and some others uh, wrestled with this about how the church misrepresented Jesus and how they themselves as Christians had misrepresented Jesus. 
uh, on the campus of the college that they were at and how it was such an obstacle, like their misrepresentation had become such, such an obstacle for those around them. And they attended a college with a few, uh, just where there was very few believers. And at this college, there's this big, crazy festival where things are about to get crazy. Uh, there's going to be, you know, drugs and alcohol and all sorts of debauchery uh, going on. And so they had this idea. Uh, they determined to set up a, a reverse confession booth during the festival, right? And so during the festival, they set up this like booth, and then Don and his friends uh, and other Christians would enter into the booth and, and would do the confessing. Like Not the students who would come in from the festivities who were doing the drugs and the alcohol and the sex and, and all the, the, you know, you name it, the sin, they were probably doing it. They didn't come in to confess. It was Don and his Christian friends who would confess. Maybe you remember this, this picture, right? And so people would come into the booth and these Christians would start confessing and they'd confess that Christians had misrepresented Jesus. And that as Christians, they themselves were guilty of misrepresenting Jesus. And they acknowledged like the failures of the church throughout history. They apologized for things like the Crusades. And they asked for these students to forgive them. Forgive them for not living like Jesus would have them for misrepresenting him on the campus, for not showing what Jesus was really like through their life and through their words and through their deeds. And I remember reading that and finding it very relatable. And I also found it really beautiful and quite moving, honestly. I longed to be a part of a church that would act in such a way, that would just be genuine, it would be honest about what's really up. Listen, we all, we all know it's true, or, or we should know it's true. The church has often misrepresented Jesus. We, in this room, who call ourselves Christians, have often misrepresented Jesus. The church has justified things like colonization. It's justified things like enslaving indigenous peoples in the name of missions, but really it was for financial and for power gain. And you and I have judged our neighbors more swiftly and more strictly than we've ever judged ourselves. We haven't taken the time to love our neighbors enough to even get to know them, to listen intently to their stories, to empathize with them where they are, or to relate to them. It's true. We may know that Jesus is about something better than what we've made him out to be, but we also have likely misrepresented him to the world around us because we ourselves have misunderstood Jesus. So the question this morning is, what is Jesus really about? What is Jesus really about? And this morning, I just want us to consider how the real God, who is Jesus, and Jesus, the real Jesus, is about more than we might have expected. And that he's up to something deeper than we might have thought. And that he's better than we have dared to imagine. Over the last few weeks and months, we've been making our way through the minor prophets at Redemption Church. And uh, it might seem that like Easter, that Resurrection Sunday would be a good time to press pause on that and maybe go over to the Gospels or something, and, or 1 Corinthians 15 that talks a lot about the resurrection. Um, but we're not going to do that. We like to keep things complicated around here. That's just how we roll. Uh, so we're going to stay in Hosea this morning. But it's pretty cool what's going on in Hosea. Hosea is one of the smaller books. It's at the end of the Old Testament. It's known as a minor prophet. It's not because Hosea and the other minor prophets were minor. They weren't like 
minor in any way. Their book was just smaller than, say, like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. So they're known as the minor prophets. There's a bunch of them all together right at the end of the Old Testament. It may be hard to find, so feel free to use your table of contents in your Bible. Nobody's judging you. That's fine. It's right between Daniel and Joel. And if you have a phone, you can pull it up on that. That's pretty easy because then you just got to click Hosea, and it doesn't matter where it's at, right? This morning we're going to be in Hosea chapter 6, 1 through 3. We'll read from chapter 5 too, but our primary passage is Hosea 6, 1 through 3. And I'm just going to go ahead and read that for us right here at the beginning. It says this, Hosea 6, 1 through 3. It says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And there's some good news in that passage. To really get a grasp on what's going on in this, in this passage of Scripture, I think we have to rewind a little bit, go back to last week. Last week, we were actually at the beginning of this section in Hosea, which starts in chapter 4. Uh, and in chapter 4, the prophet Hosea, he, he sort of starts laying out a lawsuit against Israel, right? And there's this kind of, the book kind of flows in this way. He kind of repeats this flow. First, Isaiah, I mean, Hosea will lay out an accusation of sin. That's what we looked at last week. Then he will reveal God's judgment and punishment because of the sin. And then lastly, there's a message of hope near the end, which is what we just read. That's the last part of this section. And Hosea sort of repeats this formula throughout the book. And last week we saw, like I said, how Hosea kind of laid out this accusation of sin against Israel. He, he presented evidence that Israel didn't reflect the character of God in that they had no steadfast love and faithfulness. They looked nothing like him. And beyond their lack of characteristics of God, they acted in direct violation of the Ten Commandments, which summed up their end of the covenant with God to be his people. They lie, they steal, they murder, they commit adultery, they have false gods. And the evidence is stacked up against them. They've broken the covenant, they've gone after these false gods, and they don't look anything like the people of God. That's the accusation. And this is one of the places where I think we can begin to misunderstand or even misrepresent who God is and what he's about because we begin to see God as like concerned with how well his people keep his rules. We can easily take that out of the passage and see it as the main point. We start to interpret that to mean that God is ultimately concerned with how people follow his rules. Like that's his deal. And then this can lead us to dismiss God as some kind of control freak, like who's just trying to, to make our life difficult and make us jump through hoops for some sort of sick and twisted joy for himself. Or it can lead us to, to work endlessly to keep the rules without ever getting to know the rule maker. And that will lead us to become harsh judges of ourselves, harsh judges of others, unable to show any compassion or love at all. But, we need to, I think, push beyond 
our own understanding. We need to push beyond the fact that there are rules and that they have been broken, and we need to ask some other questions. We need to ask questions like, why this really matters so much to God? What is his end goal? What's the deal here? What does his people following his rules really matter in the grand scheme of things? And in the second part of Hosea, of this section, Hosea moves on and, and, and he, of this lawsuit, and he continues in, in chapter 4 and 5. He sort of repeats this pattern throughout the book. There's the accusation of sin, and then there's an announcing of God's judgment and punishment for sins. And in Hosea chapter 5, 9 through 12, we see this announcement of judgment and punishment. And I'm just going to read it for us. 5, 9 through 12. Ephraim, Israel, shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them, I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed it's crushed in judgment because he is determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim. I like, I'm in like dry rot to the house of Judah. And then God, who through Hosea, he, he just goes on and he says this. He says that even as they were judged and even as they're already found guilty and, and, and this, this punishment is announced upon them, this judgment is announced upon them as they're, they're guilty of not following God and as they they start to feel their own demise when that happens. Instead of turning to him, they're going to turn away from him further by looking to Assyria to save them instead of their God. And, and this is what it says in chapter 5, 13 through 15. It says, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he's not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim. And like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear and, I go, and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. It's a terrifying image. He is like a lion who will tear them. And carry them back to his den. And wait for them to acknowledge their guilt. And seek him earnestly. And this comes about. He does this. Eventually this all plays out. Israel does reach out to Assyria. But Assyria doesn't save them. Instead God allows Assyria to take them. Right? He dis Assyria dismantles Israel. Brings an end to the nation. And they rip them from their land. And we read back in our series on Amos a couple a few weeks ago, a few, a couple, maybe a month ago, we read about how they led, him into, they, they led them into exile with hooks in their cheeks. That's how they carried them off into exile. And they enslaved the people of Israel. This came, all came about. And it's a terrifying picture. It should be a terrifying picture to us. He's not just cuddly and warm here. Right? God is like a lion. God is powerful and God is fierce. And I think that this is another way in which we misunderstand, in which we misrepresent God. You ever played a board game with like a sore loser? Yes. Or maybe you guys are all the sore losers. So I've played board games with you and that's why I don't like them. Just kidding. If you've played a board game with a sword loser, right, they start like arguing about the rules in the middle of the game. 
like they're better than you and like they can read better than you or something. Uh, but things aren't going their way, so they start to, to disagree and, and, and whatever. And, if, and then once things don't go their way and you don't agree about how this should go or like they, they're losing, basically, they just quit and they storm off, right? They throw this like tantrum. For some reason, that's kind of just like the picture in my head. It's very mild, honestly. But you can almost get the picture that God throws temper tantrums like that. Like, this is all a game of Monopoly, and when something doesn't go his way, he just flips the board up, takes all that fake money, and throws it in everybody's face. Right? Except it's far worse than that. Right? It's far worse than that. Like, with, if God throws tantrums, when God throws tantrums, people die. And people suffer. And so I think it makes this passage hard because we get pictures like that in our head. I think we tend to bypass passages like this because we don't know what to do with a God who gets angry, with a God who's like a lion who tears his people and carries them off and won't do anything with them unless they acknowledge him. But in bypassing the passage, I think that we miss the heart of God and, and the why and the how of his offensiveness and his fierceness. I mean... We just don't know how to reconcile ultimate goodness and a God who would tear us, right? But if you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, you know that, that part where they say he's, he's not a tame lion, but he is good. Instead of glossing over the difficulty of seeing God as this lion who tears and punishes, who's not tame, we should be asking bigger questions. What drives him to act so extremely? What's at stake that causes God to act in such a way? And if he is really good, as the Bible claims, how is this good? We should be asking those questions. And then lastly, we come to this, this morning's main passage, which we read at the beginning. And throughout this lawsuit, it has really been the voice of God through Hosea, accusing and foretelling the judgment of his people. But in chapter 6, Verses 1 through 3, this is the voice of Hosea. And he's calling out to the people to turn and to be restored by God. It's the message of hope, which Hosea repeats throughout the book. Because Hosea hears the call of God, that God tears his people and drags them away so that they would turn to him. So that they would acknowledge their sin and seek God alone. And so that they would truly know him. Right? And so he makes this call in 6, 1 through 3, and I'm just going to read it again. He says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he would bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And it is in this message of hope that the bigger questions of who God really is and what he's really about begin to be answered. Like, is God ultimately concerned with rule keeping? Or does our rule breaking point to a greater problem? Is God a thrower of temper tantrums? And when he doesn't get his way, does he throw the monopoly board in the air and become violent? Or is he more like a husband whose wife has been ravaged by another man? Or a father whose child has been kidnapped? Or maybe it's even more like he's a husband or a father of a people who are holding a gun to their own head, ready to pull the trigger. What husband, what father wouldn't get in the way of that bullet? 
even if it meant tearing their arm off or inflicting some kind of pain on their loved one in the moment to stop them from taking their own life. And Hosea gets it. God would tear his people in order to heal them. God would strike them down so that they could bind so that he could bind their wounds. God would let them endure exile so that they could see the reality of their condition and where their false gods and their sins have led them. And so that they would see in contrast his great love for them and his desire for complete restoration. The real God is at once offensive and loving. He is fierce and he is gracious. He is merciful. He is abounding in steadfast love. He is patient and he relents from disaster. But history shows that his people Israel didn't listen to Hosea's call. They were dead in their sin and they were caught up in their idolatry and they dismissed the accusations. They presumed on the promises of God and they didn't heed Hosea's call to come and return to the Lord. But this passage, this message of hope, contains a promise that I don't think Hosea could have even understood or comprehended in, in, chapter, verse, in chapter 6, verse 2. It says, after two days he will revive us and on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Now in that day and in that context, this had a meaning. This, it would have been understood in a particular way. And, and, and this is kind of how it would, it would have been like, it would have been understood to mean that while they were on their deathbed, they could still be expectant that they would make a recovery. Like a soldier who had been injured in war, who had been wounded in war, but had taken a turn for the best. So Hosea would have meant it as this lion's prey, this people of Israel, which had been torn, could still be revived and could still make a recovery. It's a call to repentance. But we know now, on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that these words carried the promise of what God was prepared to do for his people and for the world. The people of Israel didn't get it. They never sought him alone. They never returned to him, and so God went a step further. He didn't only punish them in order to heal them. He didn't just inflict injury on them, ultimately to protect them. He inflicted injury on himself. Uh, he got in the way of the bully. He got in the way of the lion's claws. Jesus, God, became man. He became the prey. He became one of, of the Israelites, one under their very judgment. And Jesus stepped in, and he was torn and he was struck down. Isaiah 53, 4-5 says it like this, Surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus took the place of the judged, and he took the punishment of the people upon himself. And he died on the cross, and he was carried off like the lion carries off his prey to the grave. And through it all, his eyes never left his father. He never looked away. He believed that God was good, and that his ways were better than anything the world had to offer. And on the third day, he ultimately fulfilled Hosea's words 
when he rose from the grave. And that's why we're here today, right? That's why we celebrate Easter. That's why we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, because of this good news of the person and work of Jesus. Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the good news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ has died and Christ has risen. And in so doing, he's taken the place of Israel. He's been raised up so that we may live before him, as Hosea says. He's able to fulfill the promises that God made to Israel, that he would bless all the nations and all the earth through him, that he would fill the earth with his own glory through the people of Israel. And life, life that, that we were created for, where we bear the image of God into all the creation, where we live in right relationship with our Father and with each other and with all the earth, that kind of life can be lived before Him and by Him and through Him. So if we've misunderstood Jesus, if we've misrepresented Jesus, or if we've had Him misrepresented to us, or He's been re- misrepresented to you, be it by the organized church or by a father or by a mother or by a friend or by a brother or sister or spouse or whoever else, just hear this this morning. The real Jesus isn't playing a game and you're not a pawn. Jesus calls you to live a particular way, but this thing isn't about rules. It's about something bigger. It's about truly living. It's about something deeper. See, I don't think God is after what we often think he's after and what we might often represent him as being after. I think God is after something far greater than we have dared to believe. It's it's proven through Jesus Christ, through his death and through his resurrection. Like we might think that God is after control, but he's not after control because he's sovereign and he proved it. Jesus died and he rose from the grave. He's sovereign. He's in control. We might think that God's after power, but he's not after power because he's all-powerful. And it's proven in his defeating death and rising from the grave. Now, he's not after any of those things. He's after the hearts of his people. He's after restoring relationship with his bride. He's after, he's a father who's after restoring his sons and daughter. He's after making all things new, after making all things right, making them beautiful, and making them good. He's after heaven on earth. He's after a people who will submit to his kingship and to his lordship and rest fully in him and taste and see that he is good. His kingdom is already in existence. Jesus is already king. He is alive. He is risen from the grave, and he is ruling at the right hand of the Father. And our king, who holds all things together, Scripture says, is after restoring the relationship that we had with him in Eden, where we knew him as ultimate ruler and friend, where we submitted to his rule because of his great love that was evident for us and his goodness that was beyond question, where we bore the image of God in his creation. And God is after a people who can 
as Hosea says in six two in chapter six verse two, he's after people who can truly live before him. As we live according to our created purposes and in right relationship with him and in right relationship with all of creation. He's greater than anything we could ever turn to or anyone we could ever turn to. His steadfast love for us is proven on the cross and through his resurrection. He has gone out to battle for us and he has won. Battle against sin and death and he has won. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And in this we find that we can trust his promises over and above anything else we might hear. And this is the cool thing. He promised to come again. So the good news is that he's coming back. And you can bank on it. We can bank on it. He's coming back. And he's not coming just to take us away and to get us out of here, but he's coming back to make all things new, to make things right, to bring heaven to earth, to restore Eden. We don't just escape death. That's not what Christians really believe. We don't just escape death. Death has lost its sting. We get to live in his creation that he made us to live in starting now and into eternity. And we get to take part in its restoration. We get to be a part of making all things new. And we get to begin to spread the good news of Jesus who is making all things new. And we can go around the world with the good news of Jesus. And we can go across the street and to our next door neighbors. And we can be ministers of of reconciliation in word and deed and in the way we are able to live our life by the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit. Knowing that there will one day be no more tears that there will be no more division, that there will be no more slander, no more stealing, no more lying, no more murder, no more false gods leading us astray, no more bombings, no more brutality. Because Christ has died, and Christ has risen, and Christ is coming back again. So what does Hosea 6, 1 through 3, and the good news of Jesus lead us to this morning? There's an invitation. Hosea 6.3 says this, Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn, and he will come to us as the showers and as the spring rains that water the earth. So how do we get away from misunderstanding and misrepresenting God? We get to know Jesus. We press on to know our Lord, not just his rules and not just his commandments, We press on to know Jesus and who God is and what he's like and what he does and who that makes us and then how we should live our lives because of it. So may we this morning see the real Jesus. May we begin to press on to know the Lord. May we stay in pursuit to know the real Jesus, not some misunderstood or misrepresented image of him. May we be resolute to keep our eyes on him and to to keep our eyes fixed in worship of God alone, letting nothing stand in our way. And may we be ready to acknowledge our sin, ready to be torn so that he can heal us, ready to be confronted in our sin, knowing that Jesus has overcome sin's power over us and that the abundant life is found in him and in nothing else. And may we be a people Christians, 
We make the real Jesus known by being honest about our failures, by loving the way that he loves, by serving the city for the good of all, and inviting everybody into the family of God. If you don't know Jesus, if you're here this morning and maybe you've misunderstood Jesus or he's been misrepresented to you, if you've misunderstood him for whatever reason, I'd really love for you to hear this. God loves you so much more than you can imagine or more than I can express. Even in preparing this, I felt the inadequacy of my ability to express how much he loves you. I cannot express it, but he has expressed it in the cross and in his resurrection. One passage in Isaiah poetically says that he would stomp down mountains and he would lift up valleys to make a way to save you. And he's done that. And more than that, God sent his son to die for you. He really did. And he defeated death so that you can live the life you were created to live. Now and hereafter and even beyond death and into eternity. A life in right relationship with your father. A right, a right relationship with each other. And a right relationship with all of creation. It's not about getting a ticket to heaven. It's not about securing the afterlife alone. It's about truly living in the here and now the way you were created to live. It's about coming to life with Christ who has risen from the grave. And he's calling you to live fully through the person and work of Jesus. The cross and the resurrection is an invitation for you to acknowledge your sin and to acknowledge your broken condition and to fall into the arms of your loving Father who loves you more than you and I can fathom. So if you'd like to follow him, if you'd turn to him this morning and believe the good news that Jesus died and rose again to make you new and to restore the world through you and through the rest of the church together, if you'd like to be a part of that, I'd love to pray for you. And you can see me as we respond. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to help walk you into knowing Jesus. We're going to move into a time of response where we'll do a few things. The band will come back up and they'll lead us in a time of worship through singing. We'll celebrate the resurrection of Jesus as we raise our voices together. We'll take offering and tithes. There's a basket in the back where you can give as your act of worship. Do that and following his commands in that way. And then every Sunday we come and we take communion. And we're going we're gonna to do that this morning. And you can come down either one of these side aisles and you can take the bread and you can dip it in the wine or the juice. The bread represents the body of Christ that was given for you. The blood represents his, the wine and juice represent his blood that was shed for you. And in so doing this, we remember together who Jesus is and what he's done and the promises he's fulfilled and that he came and that he lived and died and that he was buried and that he rose again. And in so doing, he has given us life. And we remember that together and we will proclaim this truth to one another in our action. And we also remember how in this he has made us a family. So if you're a Christian, whether you're a member at Redemption Church or not, we would invite you to come and take uh, this, this communion with us. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to move into that time. Our Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ has come, that Jesus Christ has died, that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave, and I thank you, Lord, that you're coming back. 
I thank you that your kingdom is already present and it's already a reality. Lord, I pray that you would lead us to submit to your kingship, to your rule, that you'd lead us to submit to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ, knowing that your ways and your purposes are what we were made for, and it's the only place we'll find joy. It's the only place we find satisfaction. It's the only place we find life is in your love. You love us so much. Lord, help us see that love and grab our hearts, turn our hearts' affections towards you, Lord, that we would be overcome with a love as deep for you, that we would follow you, that our life would be changed by you. And Lord, do a work in this church and at Redemption Church in our hearts that would make us a people that look like Jesus so that when the world sees us, they see Jesus. And let the gospel, the good news of, of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection pour out from this place in word and deed. Holy Spirit, go before us, prepare the way for the good news. And may we see salvation spring up from the ground in Augusta. Saturate this city with the good news of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.